You are listening to the To and Out CFL Podcast, a proud member of the Canadian Football Podcast Network. They didn't actually win a game until 1911. So <laughs> Hard for the course. The, <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's not a surprise to Ryder fans. <laughs> they had a telephone after the 1910. <laughs> <laughs> Grab some poutine and a double-double. It's time for the To and Out CFL Podcast. Now they have to kick it out, and they do! Every week, Travis Curra. Does anybody still care about this? Podcast. And Brazilian Tide. Hunters are people too. Talk fantasy football, bring you the latest in CFL news, and sprinkle in a little bit of nonsense. Are you kidding? This is unbelievable. Ready, set, hunt. And we are part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. I'm Travis Cura, joined by Brazilian Tide. And ooh, 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 ooh. there are two things in the world to talk about right now. One of them mm-hmm. is COVID-19. The other one is Tiger King. K- Carol Baskins did it. <laughs> she hey, murdered her husband and fed him to tigers. My uh, wife and I both think that too. And anybody who doesn't is just they're wrong. <laughs> so I went on Big Cat Rescue's Facebook page just to see did. what's going on there. The trolls are just nonstop. <laughs> It's the best. I, I don't know how to describe this show to anybody that hasn't watched it. But now there are there are two groups of people. People that have watched Tiger King and love it and discuss it mm-hmm. and all this. Then there's the other group that will refuse to watch it. I don't know why. Maybe Grant Biebrick, we're looking at you. Does it, why? Why is he refusing to watch it? Actually, <laughs> I don't know. I don't I, know. My self-esteem is infinitely better oh. after watching it. I, I, how can it not be? <laughs> if you're looking at going in and you, you want to watch some Emmy Award-winning TV, maybe not. But can, can, we t- can we talk about how he got two people to marry him at the same time? <laughs> and they were both like 25 years younger than him. Yeah. <laughs> and how crazy Doc Antle is? Like, what, what is he a doctor of? <laughs> this, the fact that this is actually happening on our planet, never mind our continent, is is mind blowing. <laughs> it it is phenomenal. So, how long did it take you to watch it? Three nights because I I watched two episodes uh, and I was in Regina for work and I'm like, hey, I'm not staying up till 1 a.m. again watching TV and playing poker. I'm going to go to bed. So I just split it up. Uh, but it was really hard not to watch it. Yeah, uh, I did five episodes in one day and then two the next. <laughs> I kept, oh, my God. I kept thinking, this ain't going to get crazier. Yeah, it gets crazier. <laughs> <laughs> the eyebrow ring in itself yeah, deserved yeah. its own episode. The memes uh, that have come out of it are just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. To quote Jim Rome, phenomenal. <laughs> um, the funeral oh. was was ridiculous. I I was squirming like oh man. I actually the felt music like- the music videos are. Unreal. Okay, that's actually the best part. Like, he's actually not that bad of a singer. No, I, I was actually very impressed. Um, <laughs> l- 
it <laughs> it's just there <laughs> it's Jerry you know, Springer when you do something incredibly well, no it's better than Jerry Springer <laughs> You know when you do something incredibly stupid and you're like, oh, I'm the stupidest person on yeah. planet Earth. Yep. No, you're not. <laughs> you're not. You, you're not. You are you good have, enough. <laughs> you could have got a tattoo on your on your upper pelvis that says property of Joe Exotic. <laughs> oh, and then it gets covered up and it's not completely covered up. <laughs> no. No, of course not. Why would it be? Oh, I, there are a lot of haters of it, so we should probably stop talking about it. But no, what else is there to talk about? Like it, it is probably okay. I do have to bring this up. The when the one when the one uh, I don't know what you zookeeper or whatever we're gonna call them got their arm bitten off and goes to work five days later. No, that's not the crazy part. Let's talk about the wardrobe change. <laughs> That Joe would have had to do because I guarantee he wasn't wearing an EMS jacket when it got, when she got her arm bitten off. <laughs> so he would have stopped everything, went and put on this jacket, and then went and and did the and, and he's tying a tourniquet. Like, what are you doing? She got her arm bitten off by a tiger. Went to work five days, five later, days later, and is the most normal yeah. person on that show. Yeah, I, I think that's that's pretty fair. <laughs> let's uh, let's try to talk about football in the huddle with Karan Ty on the Two and Out podcast. All right, maybe we don't have much football to talk about, but the CFL officially postponed uh, training camp. It was supposed to start right around May long weekend. Here in Canada, I think we all knew it was going to happen. The next step is games. Mm-hmm. Uh, will will there be CFL in June, Ty? I don't believe so. Uh, John Tory yesterday, you know, basically pulled every permit in Toronto for any public event. Uh, that being said, I know sports are on private ground, and so it doesn't apply to that. But the fact that it's still an issue, and we don't know how bad this is going to get, yeah. uh, it's probably just better safe than sorry at this point. Uh, you know, we can hold out hope. Yeah, but I think we're setting. I think you're setting yourself up for heartbreak uh, before too long. I think. I think we're gearing up for a Labor Day start. Which makes every game matter. Yeah, which I, I think I, I don't want to do that every year. I, I do think it would be uh, fun to be cranked up from September to November. I, I think that's likely, maybe. Hockey did half a season, and it worked out fine. Yeah. I mean, the Leafs still didn't win a cup. So that was uh, good. You know, it's it's not, yeah, they only blew a three-goal lead in the third period. It's not <laughs> like... It's not like, you know, a shortened season is going to make something weird happen. No, no. Because Winnipeg already won. I mean, that's... Did they? (laughs) Allegedly. (laughs) Well, I mean, probably an illegible player or two, but... (laughs) So, 
We'll see what happens. My gut tells me that things are going to clear up in Canada before the States, and we kind of need it. <laughs> wow, wow, you're really going out on a limb there. We, we kind of need it both to be cleared up to have a league. Yes, so. 100%. I mean, the state situation is what, like, we could be, we could flatten the curve in Canada and get back to life somewhat normal, and, you know, the states could screw that up for everybody CFL wise, because it, it's not getting it's getting a hell of a lot worse yeah. uh, than they thought it was going. If, to be. if the players can't get here, then there's no yeah. there's no games. So yeah, I, I don't know where we go from here. Um, but you know what? We, we talk about uh, some dark times with our guest today, uh, Rob mm-hmm. Van Stone from the Regina Leader Post, and I think that the CFL's in a lot better financial times now than it was yes. <laughs> during or right after the U.S. expansion. So I I think that, uh, well, obviously it's not going to be good or ideal if the season is canceled, but uh, I think we're going to pull through. And I do think we will have a Grey Cup in uh, November. Uh, a really cool initiative or, and marketing campaign done by the Winnipeg Blue Palmers here, Heroes of Champions Way. And basically, they have turned stars of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers into comic book characters. They've teamed up with Athletic Comic, I believe it's what it's called, um, uh, Izzy Adonahe. Uh, Israel Adonage, uh was with the mm-hmm. University of Manitoba. Um, now he went to the NFL. He is a part on TSN, I believe. From yeah, time to time. he's a part of this uh, athletic comics and was a part of this uh, campaign, which is so, so cool. And what they're going to do at the end of it all, uh, they want to hear your story. So they're asking fans to submit uplifting stories of everyday heroes who are stepping up during this critical time, whether it's doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, police, firefighters, grocery store workers, truck drivers, mm-hmm. anyone on the on the front lines right now keeping things going as much as they can. And they're going to select three stories Turn them into superheroes and have them as a part of the Heroes of Champions Way campaign. This is cool. Yeah, I mean, it also is going to market to the younger crowd. Yeah. Uh, You know, we keep hearing about the lost generation of CFL fans. Uh, You know, so this can't hurt that. And and we've said it, I don't know how many times, but anything to get butts in the seats and, you know, stuff that's going to market the league uh, or even teams individual isn't going to be a bad thing. Uh, you know, and like you said, with, with them doing the extra stuff in the commu- for for first responders and, and, you know, people that are, are deemed essential workers just adds to it as well. Um, I am reading some of the things and I know people are probably going to accuse me of beating a dead horse. But the Andrew Harris one. I know where you're going. Holy man. I find hilarious. I do. <laughs> it's like, you guys, come on. Harris has the ability to enter, enter supercharged mode where would-be tacklers bounce right <laughs> off him as he drives past them. No. I think it writes itself, I mean, buddy. <laughs> like they, they call it stored energy. Um 
I wouldn't call it energy, but that, I mean, I'll let you write your own headlines <laughs> here, but I mean, I just found that hilarious. <laughs> we talk about the lost generation. Uh, the CFL did uh, Randy's road trip live on Facebook last week, and he mentioned mm-hmm. something very interesting. Um, it does look like the draft is going to go ahead at the end of the month, but the global combine is not happening. And what their original plan was to have this global combine, have the players there. This would be like a day before training camp. After the combine, you have the global draft. The players go to their CFL cities after that, and then they're right into training camp, which I really like that idea. But Mm -hmm. he also mentioned that he was going to talk with some of these international partners about a console video game and uh, video games they cost so much money i don't think people realize it bankrupt kurt schilling how much money investing in video games they take to it's like a movie it's they're almost like Mm -hmm. hollywood productions now and the the amount you need to sell to break even is pretty crazy so If they could get investments from these international football partners to make a game, I, I think that might be one of the only ways to do it. Unless they get a side so. thing going in Madden, sort of like the international and junior teams in uh, NHL. Um, I mm-hmm. think that would be ideal. Uh, I, I just don't know if they're on EA Sports uh Uh, radar at all this way i thought was a very interesting proposal that might make something happen and you know to bring players in from other countries like with the with the with the 2.0 that randy's bringing you know to try to get maybe i don't want to say in into business with them but to have kind of you know a thing where if they do invest in this like there is some business aspect where they are involved in the league a little more than just their players. Yeah. And I think, I think that adds to it as well, where you can, it's easier to become global and, you know, grow the game and not, not just the Canadian game, but football in general. I mean, football is pretty big around the American football. Still, it's, it's not soccer, but it is getting bigger. And I think if, if they get in business and, you know, with investments and and all that stuff and bringing the players in, that's only going to be a good thing. And if, the, and if that means that those international players are, are better five years from now because of the growth of the game and the, the coaching and, and the money that they can invest, then, you know, the league is all the better for it. There is still some regular league things happening right now, including the rules committee meeting today. And there are some things they're going to discuss, honestly, Nothing crazy, some minor tweaks here and there, talking about illegal participation. Sometimes uh, a guy on a cover team will step out of bounds like 50 yards away from the play and then make the tackle. They're like, do we really need to call something like that? So that might change. They're looking at the roughing the passer standard, uh, 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 maybe the long stappers not allowing defenders to line up over top of them, but also... The card. We saw a few times oh, God. last year where some great plays were made on special teams, mm-hmm. but they weren't on the card before the game. So the, the plays did not count because of ineligible receivers. 
Um, mm-hmm. it's, 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 a, it's such a convoluted rule. Yeah, and I already think that Canadian football, especially the CFL, might be one of the most complicated games to officiate for the refs. Why not mm-hmm. make it simpler when... Does it like is is some fan going to sit? That guy wasn't eligible. That shouldn't count. No, I mean these but are. Now, but now without the card, they can just go to the command center and check. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. It, it's so easy. Uh, you know, the, and like you're saying, fan sitting at home. The PGA had to scrap that. Like we cannot take phone calls anymore for rule violations. <laughs> right, because it got ridiculous. And yeah. I mean, Patrick Reed's getting you know thirty phone calls about him around. Uh, but you know the the card we we didn't even know it was a rule no and then it happened a few until times until like week week 1 or week 2 and then when it happened again it's like okay we kind of understand it now it's still it it's so it's not black and white well no. it is but it's not yeah and it's super confusing when players line up and and you're trying to get all the it's I mean, it takes them forever to figure out the card when there is a call like that. Like, it, it's just easier to get rid of it and, you know, just report. Report, line up in an eligible position, done deal. And the, who cares about the card anymore? Because we don't need it. We have replay for that now. The rest of this podcast is going to be very Rough Rider centered. If you don't want to listen to the rest of it, I understand. But a lot of it is uh, historical. Yeah, I think we just lost 90% of our viewers. <laughs> yeah. Listeners, <laughs> it's historical facts from Rob Van Stone. He uh, is the sportsman for the Regina Leader Post and also the author of 100 Things Rough Riders Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. I got this for Christmas, I love it. Uh, some of the stuff was hard to read <laughs> just because I didn't want to feel those feelings again. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll discuss that book and a lot of other things to do with the Rough Riders with Rob and, and a little bit of our hometown. Yes, in just a moment. Uh, this episode of Two and Out is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Park Power is a small local business, and like many of you, it has been closely monitoring monitoring the news on COVID-19 and the world's rapidly changing circumstances. While many of their team are currently working remotely, the way Park Power does business has not changed, and their commitment to exceptional customer service will remain. Find out more about Park Power's response to the COVID-19 outbreak at parkpower.ca. I, I, I guess I just want to start by asking about your Lloyd Minster connection because both Tyrell and I grew up and did our schooling in Lloyd Minster. You spent some time there. Uh, how was that experience? It was really cool. Uh, nobody remembers me, at least for, for good reasons. <laughs> um, I did my internship at the, what was then called the Lloyd Minster Meridian Booster uh, on, uh, in the fall of 2000, uh, pardon me. Uh, it's not that recent. Night, fall of 1986 it was 101 days. Uh, it must have seemed like an eternity for Dave McCullough, the editor, <laughs> for Jeff McCaution, the sports editor, for Byron Keebaugh, the publisher. But uh, it was really an eventful time because it was the only time I've ever covered news in my career. Okay. And it, it covering news, it was a news slash sports internship. So I basically covered news during the week and sports during the weekend. And. Uh, 
it actually worked out to my benefit because I was so lousy at covering news that they just insisted I cover sports because it just I might be able to keep the newspaper from being sued <laughs> if I'm just writing down field hockey sports. So, <laughs> uh, I was I was the worst intern ever, and and uh, the previous intern was Ian Hamilton, who's just oh wow, except and Ian's ex- Ian's exceptional, and so he had his internship in the winter of '86, and then they kept him on for the summer. But Ian had been there for eight months, and then, and then, uh, then I I followed him, and it was like, okay, you've been listening to Frank Sinatra for eight months. Now here's, um, <laughs> you know, uh, Weird Weird Al Yankovic, right? Hey, was, I like Weird Al. <laughs> hey now, hey now. <laughs> I was just trying to think of uh, Vic Simone. I'm just trying to think of somebody who's sort of perceived as marginal in terms of. Uh, Vocal techniques, but it was just it was a tough act to follow because Ian was they just loved Ian up there, and then I went up there and just proceeded to make mistake after mistake after mistake after. I was just the worst intern ever, and uh, so 101 days of sheer futility. The best part was I got to see a lot of Oiler games with Edmonton being 248 kilometers down the road, so. Anytime I got a chance on a day off and to see an Oilers game, I was just I was gone. I saw Gretzky's 500th goal. I wow. saw some really cool things while I was uh, living in Lloydminster. I didn't really I didn't really do anything that uh, would make me memorable, but there were some memorable things. And the people up there were so nice. I got I I remember playing on uh, touch football on the field at Lakeland College. I was on a touch football team there. Played some slow pitch and uh, Bud Miller Park was a nice place to go and skate and. Uh, uh, it was really cool. Every time I go by, go through like Minster, I just drive around and marvel at how different it is from yeah. when I was there. Uh, b- before we move on f- from Lloyd too quick, you-, you couldn't have made that many mistakes because a couple years ago, I, I don't know, this-, this made its rounds on Twitter a little bit, but I just wanted to say that you couldn't have been that bad because somebody literally on the front page of the sports section, I don't know if it was the booster or not, uh, there was male genitalia in, in full view. <laughs> From a from a rugby tackle that went through like six people before it got printed. I remember so, that. So I mean, whatever you did pales in whatever you did to screw up pales in comparison to that. Well, thank you for changing my perception of that internship because uh, I was convinced I was I was the worst thing to ever happen to Lloyd Minster, and I and I actually there are several people who signed affidavits to that effect as well. So. Well, well, until until December 1987, you you might have been, but and then Travis was born. <laughs> <laughs> well, where did you go from Lloyd then? Uh, basically, uh, their deportation was considered. Um, <laughs> I, had a, I had a semester left of journalism school, so I uh, okay. on December on December tenth, nineteen eighty six, I uh, returned from Lloyd to. I watched the I watched the Jets play the Oilers at Edmonton. Oilers won, but Dale Howard Chuck got a goal, so I was happy. Returned to Lloydminster, cleaned out my place in the middle of the night, and drove to Regina. Wow! And um, I worked that Christmas at the Leader Post, where I worked the previous summer. I uh, went back to journalism school for a semester, and then went back to the Leader Post for a second summer job. And that second summer job has never stopped. Oh, that nice! <laughs> yeah, it's a really long thirty-three year summer job. So. Now, I guess you were in Regina there during some pretty rough days with uh, the the Rough Riders. You've been doing sports since around I, the back of the book says 1996. Um, that was a rough time in both CFL and Rough Rider history. Oh, it really was. I uh, 
I mean, I've, I've worked as a leader post while my first summer job was in 86, first summer, uh, and then I was hired full-time in 87. And 87 was the year of a telethon. One of the first right. things I during that second summer job, I covered a rider telethon. Uh, ten wow. years later, in 1997, I covered another rider telethon, and and uh, I became the sports columnist in '96, and that's when I started writing about the Rough Riders more frequently, or more frequently. Before that, I'd been primarily the the hockey writer, and um, it was I'll never forget the '96 season, as forgettable as it might be for from a lot of standpoints. It was just a bad team, but. Um, the Rough Riders played their final home game in 96. They didn't make the playoffs. And after that game, my column angle was, have we just seen Rough Rider football for the final time? Has this been the last game in the history of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders? Wow. And nobody really thought it was an outlandish premise for a column because the situation was that dire, not only for the Rough Riders, but for the Canadian Football League. Uh, it was just they were the league and the t- and the Rough Riders. Most of the teams were in such dire straits, and they didn't have the U.S. expansion money coming in as a band aid that had been there for the previous three years. And I, I covered the Grey Cup in Hamilton that year, and it was like a death wa- CFL death watch the entire Grey Cup week. Is this going to be the final Grey Cup? Wow, yeah, that's where the discussion per- uh, extended from. Is this the final Rider game? And it was really a sad, somber week, and then we got that wonderful Grey Cup between Edmonton and, and Toronto in the snow. And uh, that just showed everything the Canadian football could be, but nobody was out of the woods. It took the, the NFL being a benefactor with a loan to the CFL, and it kind of kept everything afloat for a, uh, for another year. And that gave the Rough Riders enough money for their telethon that they were able to continue. And gradually it just started getting a little better. Things were never quite that dire Again, there's been trouble spots around the league, and arguably there may still be. But uh, the league's future is not imperiled, and uh, that hasn't been probably the situation for a generation now. But uh, in 96, fall of 96, extending into the winter, there were really very reasonable questions as to whether the league or the Rough Riders or both would still be around. And uh, hard to believe now when you see the, the... the prosperity of, of the Rough Riders. Yeah, it seemed like 2007 happened, and then Rider Pride just absolutely exploded. Like, did you ever see it getting to that point in 1996? No, I had a taste of it in 81-82. The Riders had um, gone 2-14 and 14 in back-to-back seasons, and um, pretty grim. But uh, in 81 people started falling in love with the team again in, ter- in terms of big crowd numbers. The team went 9-7. and seven. They were all sorts of fun to watch. Joey Walters was making spectacular catches all over the place. People just fell in love with this team that was suddenly a contender. And, and for the, over, the 80, over the 81 season, attendance was over 100% because they just put people in the, on, the, <laughs> uh, on, the, on the grass and yeah. what was then known as Hemorrhoid Hill. And <laughs> 82, they, they sold a record number of season tickets. And, and again, they played uh, exceeding this... With an average crowd exceeding the seating capacity, so I saw a taste of it there, where there was the real ravenous appetite for rider tickets. But beyond '82, aside from the Labor Day game, there really wasn't a high demand for rider tickets by and large. It was a, people loved the team in significant numbers, and the riders were obviously huge. But I thought it was going to kind of be a, a certain level for for a, a long time, where they'd be. You know, a good season to be twenty, an average crowd of twenty four, twenty five, and you know they might squeak into the playoffs, finishing nine and nine in third place, and then 
you know, every every ten years they would get hot in the playoffs and get to the Great Cup. And then 2007 happened, and that was transformative in so many ways. Suddenly, I think people just fell in love with that team so quickly with Ken Austin coaching and Kerry yeah. Joseph quarterbacking, and and very quickly the tickets became a hot item. And you had games that were to this day talked about. There was the game against Edmonton in the storm, but it was delayed by the storm. Yeah. And then there was the Kerry mm-hmm. Joseph quarterback draw for a victory in the Labor Day game that gave the Riders a 7-2 and two record. And suddenly, for the, from then on, getting Rider tickets was virtually impossible. And then they had the home playoff game, and it was just crazy. And then they won the Grey Cup. And that just that took everything to a new tier. And suddenly the discussions, very quickly the discussions began to change in terms of their context. Yes, the Rough Riders needed an upgraded facility in which to play, but the, the deficiencies of, of Taylor Field were suddenly apparent because it had been pushed to the limit and okay well do we want to spend nine figures renovating taylor field and maybe putting a band-aid on it or do you want to spend a little more but get a new stadium everything changed with that 2007 season the the expectations for the team they went on the next decade was very prosperous for them in general financially and in terms of performance and the new stadium opens and 2007 Probably late su- late summer of 2007 was the catalyst, I think, for everything that's continued since then. What was your first game at the old girl then? Well, the first one I'm aware of, and I've, I've told this story several times, and I think I used this one-liner in the in the book. I was born in 1963, and I attended my first Ryder game in 1964. I was at <laughs> yeah. the Little Miracle of Taylor Field game on November 13, 1963. My pregnant mom went. And wow. uh, that's the game where they were uh, down by 26 and after game one of a two-game total point series against Calgary, and they won the second one 39-12 to win the series by a point. And I was at that game. Uh, the first game I really, really, really vividly remember was in August of 1971. And uh, the Riders played Ottawa. And Ed McQuarters, a Hall of Fame defensive lineman, had had lost an eye in a carpentry accident during the offseason. And uh, he returned to the lineup for that late August game against Ottawa. It was, I remember standing up and giving Ed McWhorters a standing ovation. It was just amazing to see this guy returning to play so soon after that horrible injury. And uh, that, that was the game that really that I could look at and say, yeah, that was the first game that I really remember. And then in 1972, my mom took me to the Western Final in Winnipeg when the Riders made the big comeback and beat Winnipeg 27-24. So, you know, after post-1971, it, it really, I've got some vivid recollections. I, don't, I really don't remember the 1963 game very well. It was kind of dark. <laughs> and what's <laughs> always... Like my time in Lloyd Minster. <laughs> <laughs> what's always sort of uh, blown my mind about the whole Ronnie and George era in Rough Riders history is that there's only one Grey Cup, and I, it's I, amazing. I, I almost feel like if that was an error in or an era in Eskimo history, that it would just be a blip on the radar. Um, but why yeah, you know, is it just looked at? Well, I guess why did they only win one Grey Cup? Was it just that the Western playoffs were just such a slug fight, or until they got to the Grey Cup, or what? I think that's a lot of it. It was really weighted in, in a, to the advantage of the East. Right. Um, I mean, the Eskimos won five game Grey Cups in succession. They won more Grey Cups in succession than the Riders have won ever. Yeah. And, <laughs> but if you look at the we don't need to be reminded nine games, <laughs> and they won the Grey Cup in, in '66 with nine victories. Well, '67 through '70, the record kept improving. The better Rough Rider teams um, mm-hmm. 
couldn't win the Grey Cup. They got to one in 67. They lost 24-1 to to Hamilton. They got there in 69. They lost 29-11 to Ottawa. 1970, they had a 14-2 and record and didn't get to the Grey Cup, but a, ba- a mediocre Montreal team beat a mediocre Calgary team for the Grey Cup. And uh, so it's so it's so strange that the, the best Ronnie and George teams, record-wise, and throw Hugh Campbell and all those greats in there as well, didn't win the Grey Cup, but the one that was the underdog in 66, yeah. Ottawa was supposed to trounce them, ended up winning 29-14. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it, I think, you know, I think the best theory is the one that you prefaced the question with. Eastern teams back then played 14 regular season games. Western teams played played uh, 16. In the East, it was it was uh, there were shorter playoffs. With, whereas in the West, it was it could be an endurance test. There were years the Riders had to play. There were years the Riders played five playoff games just to get to the Grey Cup on awful frozen fields. <laughs> and so and you've got George George Reed trying to deal with Wayne Harris and vice versa. So whoever whoever got to the Grey Cup was going to be one banged up football team. And in 67 they were banged up in 69 they they had some injuries. 67 especially. They were really dinged that year. And and uh that was just that was a really beaten up rider team and uh it was just it was so tough to get out of the west. Like you look at it now and it's hard to believe that people allowed yeah. The rules to be so different for the East and the West because it was just so, it was so tilted in the East's favor. It, it's it's amazing that that was even allowed to happen. How is it that you have a league with different number of regular season games depending upon yeah. what conference you're in? I still think it's stupid that baseball's got a designated <laughs> hitter and won the American League, but not the National League. What if the Thank National you. League had 162 games and the American League at 154? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing. It's just ridiculous. B- baseball's got enough asterisks. I don't think we need any more. That's <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> I, I think the little miracle on Taylor Field, which I, that the story of that game, it 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 seems like almost mm-hmm. like a comic book story. But then they they also would have not only did they have the two game total points, but they had what a three game series with the BC Lions. And looking at back at that now, it's just mind blowing that they oh, did it that. Is, you know. Especially a lot of the talk now is, you know, do you want to move the CFL season earlier? Obviously not this year, but um, you want the CFL season to be earlier so you're not playing as many cold-weather games. Well, it'd get to November, and then they'd, just, they'd, they'd play games with greater frequency, with more at stake. Yeah. And, you know, the Riders finally get past Calgary in that series, and they go to BC, they play three games, and get blown out in the last one. Um, you know, the, it was right after, I think the last game was right after the John, John F. Kennedy assassination, too. And uh, so it was just a very weird yeah. time. And the, and the Riders got trounced mm-hmm. in that last game to BC against BC. They returned to the airport, and there's I think there's two thousand people there to greet them. Wow! They lost a playoff game. Wow! And, uh, that tells you something about Rider fans. But uh, it it it's, it boggles the mind, especially the cli- the climate now. When you're talking about player safety and yeah. you know, <laughs> all all those type of things, and you look at the conditions back then, and and the you know. I think there was one year they played five games in seventeen days, fifteen oh. days, something like that. It was just, it's just, it's absurd, you know. But nobody really thought twice about it back then. 
So you've got the book that came out last year, 100 Things Rough Rider Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Uh, I did hear your conversation with the guys on the Piffles podcast, but I'll ask you again. When something like this happens, or you, you have this on the table, where do you start to make a list of 100 things? Um, that was really daunting. Um, the tough part wasn't coming up with a list of 100. It was, it was whittling it down from 100, about 150. Uh, not long after I'd said yes, my wife said, my wife gave me the assent to go ahead with the book because it's, it's, it's quite a time commitment. And, uh, and, uh, so I needed her approval. That night I sat down in the recliner and just started blasting out potential topics. I had this long list. I eventually got down to a hundred and then a little 20 little sidebar chapters. Yeah. And, and then, then it became a matter of putting them in order. And I thought the early chapters, I'll just rank them in order of importance. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's subjective, but you make sure all the biggies are up, up high. Right. And I thought 2013 was the big one because of a, it wasn't that long ago. Then they won a great cup at home. I mean, it was just, it was the greatest day in the history of the franchise. And so I led with that, and then just started prior, prioritizing them after that. I knew the 13th Man game would be Chapter 13, so that was an easy one to slot. Uh, some of the other ones, I, I geared them around uniform numbers. Chapter 23 is mm-hmm. Ronnie. Chapter 24 is uh, Chapter 34 is George. Chapter 17 was was Joey Walters. Chapter 71 is Bobby Jurison. Chapter 81 is Ray Algard. Chapter 18 is Jeff Fairholm, etc. I went a little overboard with the with the player. Slash <laughs> chapter number. Late, Gino but, is sixty. Yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. You know, it just. Uh, uh, I'm sure Roger was forty four. Um, it's. It, I. I basically wrote it. Uh, to a lot of it. Uh, more than a year ago, so I'm still trying to remember yeah. what was in it. <laughs> but uh, after, and, and sometimes they just settled into nice little, little spots it was it was a weird writing process because the other two books i did were more linear and chronological whereas this one you know i'd write chapter one and then i'd write chapter 81 and then i'd go back to 22 and you know you're waiting for interviews to come in for some other chapters so it's like you can write the you can write the ones you can write chapter 93 before you write chapter six and it really doesn't matter and uh but it was it was a different kind of challenge piecing it together i I don't. I don't really look at it now and think that I missed anything that really, really, really should have been in there. You know, given the opportunity for a do-over, given the events of last season, uh, there'll be a nice. There will be a Cody Fajardo chapter. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Things like that. Um, but uh, I don't. I don't really looking at it now. I don't think I missed anything that I really thought should have been in there, and I'm kind of comforted by that because you know what it's like. You just. You know, slap your forehead and think, oh, yeah, I forgot the 66 breakup. I didn't want to have that day. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, when you got got 100 things, and <laughs> I mean, hope maybe in 30 years you can do 150 things, but uh, <laughs> I'm glad because an artist never is done their project, but I, I, I get the sense maybe you are a bit done with this one. Yeah, I just, you know, if, if, if it's successful enough that they want to revise it, there's certainly some revisions that I, I'd be happy to make, but yeah. you know, you just, you, it's, it's a bit of a, a, a mind bending experience when you read something that you've already written and you cannot correct. So, yeah. um, I'm not among the people who has read the book because all I'm going to do is proofread it again. It's, I've looked at the pictures. There's 10 of them. They're very nice, but, uh, um, I just, uh, it's too, it's, 
it's really stressful reading your own book because all you're going to do is think, I should have done this, I should have done that. And if you find an error, it just it just makes you miserable. So um, uh, I don't recommend that people avoid it, but <laughs> I do just to preserve <laughs> my own sanity. And I'd love to, you know, I'd, I'd love to do some more rider books, but that that was certainly the more most all encompassing one I'd ever done. I did I did one on the '66 team, I did one on the '89 team, and those had wingspans. You know, the '66 the book went from '51 to 2008, and the '89 book started in '76 and ended ended uh, with the '89 Grey Cup. So I, they had both had a bit of a wingspan, but starting in 1910, you know, I was only a kid then, so it. Uh, I have to brush up on a few things. <laughs> like you said, you had like 150, uh, you know, stories and, and, you know, stuff that happened throughout the history. You've been going to games for 50 years. Was there stuff that you learned, like anything new that you didn't really know about writing this book? Or was it already kind of stuff that you had a had an idea of? Well, there were little, little tidbit things that maybe a nerd like me would appreciate. Bill Belichick's dad was a... Steve Belichick was a guest coach at the Riders training camp in the late 50s. Oh, wow. I thought that one was pretty cool. Yeah, I thought that was neat. And for the longest time, I'd always figured that the Regina Rugby Club's first ever game was played in Regina. Right? That would seem to make sense. There were only two teams in the league that year, Regina and Moose Jaw. And, uh, but I never really paid as much attention to the early years as I did sort of from Glenn Dobbs in 1951 onward. And uh, it should have registered with me earlier, but the Riders' first game actually was in Moose Jaw. They played the Moose Jaw Tigers on October 1st, 19 and lost. They didn't actually win a game until 1911. So <laughs> Hard I for the course. So, <laughs> so yeah, that, that's not a surprise to Rider fans. <laughs> they had a telethon after the 1910 <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, there were, you know, things like that, you know, the history of, of black players with the Rough Riders, I wasn't as familiar uh, with that. And uh, that was kind of interesting. Just, uh, uh, you know, Gabe Patterson was a great rider star in the late 1940s, but there were issues, result, I think, allegedly pertained to racism that kind of curtailed his, his time with the green and white. I wasn't familiar with, as familiar with how good Gabe Patterson was or some of the forces that that worked against him. A lot, a lot of the early stuff was really interesting to me because I'd, I'd read it, but I really hadn't written about it a lot, and I hadn't yeah. really absorbed it. And digging into that, I thought, was just delicious fun. I had a lot more stuff. Uh, it was really cool. I decided to... We did a video on rider history, kind of a historical tour of the riders uh, last summer, and we went to notable spots in Regina and said, okay, this happened here and this happened here, and Glenn Dobbs used to live here, etc. And we decided to go to Moose Jaw to, the Pat? Ever to, to find the site of the first ever Rough Rider or Regina Rugby Club game, and it's, it's where Crescent Park is in, now in Moose Jaw. And it was so weird to stand on the very spot where they first played, yeah. not really having grasped earlier that that first game was in Moose Jaw. And it was a great day for the Moose Jaw Tigers. You grew up a fan, and now you cover the team, which I think is really, really cool. I mean, it, it's it, the team has almost been around you your uh, entire life. I mean, before you were even born, you were going to games. Um, obviously, there had to be some games in there that had some emotional connection uh, that you talked about, namely the heartbreaking ones. Um, for me, I had to take pause before reading 
chapter 13. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'll I, put this down for today and revisit it another day. But there was there some tough ones that uh, your life as a fan maybe uh, brought out a little bit? Oh, absolutely. I, 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 uh, you know the hotels that go from... Um, uh, the 12th floor to the 14th floor without oh. having 13. Yeah. If you go in the elevator, I think some people would have preferred if I'd done that with the book. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was, uh, but that was a really interesting chapter to write because Ken Miller told me it still haunts him. It still affects how he watches football. Yeah. He was very honest about it, and Darian Durant was as well. But um, the one that really hit me hard was the 1976 Grey Cup. I was 12 years old, and Mum and I went to that game in Toronto. And uh, so I was you're not a Gabriel fan. When Tony Gabriel caught that, but Tony <laughs> Gabriel's a wonderful guy. I've interviewed him a pile of times. He's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. And uh, it, uh, it that was just devastating to me as a 12 year old. That was the worst day of my life till my dad died. I mean, wow. honestly, it just November oh, 28, 1976 was was absolutely crushing because I thought they'd won it. It was the inverse of 1970, 1966 when. When Ottawa was the huge favorite, the Riders were a powerhouse that year. Yeah. They had this great defense. They'd, they'd gone into Ottawa and smoked them during the regular season. There was it seemed like it felt like the Grey Cup that year was actually beating Edmonton twenty three thirteen in the West Final to get to the Grey Cup. Once they could finally get past Edmonton, which to whom they'd lost or to which they'd lost in each of the previous three West Finals, the Grey Cup almost seemed like it was a it was a free space. But uh, then to to lose that game, that was that was just. That was awful for me as a 12-year-old and awful, awful for my mom because I think they just wished, I think she just wished at that point that she'd gotten another cat. So, uh, <laughs> decisions made in 1963 were, uh, were second-guessed, but I was just a real crying brat that day. So that was, the 76 Great Cup will always, always resonate with me. And another game that got to me emotionally but on a different level was the uh, 1978 uh, game in Edmonton, uh, Ron yeah. Lancaster's final game. And uh, to, to this day, it, it, I think it will always be my favorite sporting event ever. The, the you know the three hours uh, that I value more than any in my life as a sports fan were on October 29th, 1978, when the Riders went to Edmonton and won 36-26, and that was Ron Lancaster's final game as a player. And uh, the week before, he did played his final game at uh, Taylor Field, and he'd come in in the fourth quarter in relief of a rookie named Larry Dick that they were trying to give some playing time to because he was the perceived heir apparent. And Ronnie threw two interceptions and was booed, and it was just awful. Like it was, I, it was just as as, as bad as you, uh, a sporting event can be. It was hearing Ronnie get booed in his final yeah. game. It was just terrible, final mm-hmm. home game. But a week later, he's got one final chance. Till Larry Dick starts the game again, plays pretty well. But in the fourth quarter, the Eskimos fans are char- chanting, "We want Ronnie." We're chanting, "We want Ronnie," and the cheap seats in the end zone. I'd gone to the game with my mom on a dash tours bus trip, and. Uh, Suddenly, Ronnie comes in, and he's getting a standing ovation from the home fans. And he comes in, throws a touchdown pass to Joey Walters. Uh, Riders pounce on a fumble after that. Ronnie scores the insurance touchdown on a one-yard quarterback sneak. And he gets a standing ovation from the Eskimo fans. They're happy their team has lost because Ronnie had this storybook ending. And not only was that amazing, but when you, when you contrast it to what had happened in Regina a week earlier, it was just impossibly sweet. So it was a meaningless game for the Eskimos. They'd clinch first place. It was a meaningless game for the Rough Riders. They weren't going to make the playoffs. It was their fourth win of the year. But it will always be my favorite sporting event. I cherish uh, memories of that 1978 uh, game in Edmonton. My mom took a camera to the game. 
I found it on a bunch of old slides. Oh, wow. Slides. And Mom took a camera, and she has tons of pictures of that game, but they're all of the fans. There isn't one picture <laughs> of the game. <laughs> I, was, I was so excited when I yeah. saw labeled everything, right? So I saw about 20 photos that are labeled Riders in Edmonton, 1978. <laughs> so I go through them, and they're all, okay, there's Dave Ash, there's Sandy Man Monteith, there's Jim McKenzie, there's Sandor Jerkovitz, but there was no Ron Lancaster. <laughs> I forgive her. <laughs> 2013 happens. It was my first Grey Cup. Travis had been going for years. You know, the riders finally, you know, it, it was almost like they got over a hump and again. I mean, 07, it, was, it took forever. And 13, it just seemed like after what we'd gone through, it just, you know, it seemed to finally be vindication, whether it be 2009, 2010, uh, you know, 97 against Toronto, 76, like you, like you mentioned, against Ottawa. Did, did 2013 kind of make up for those for you, like on a personal level and kind of wash away the hurt? Or was it just, you know, in that moment, it was hard to think like that? You know, 76 will always feel like a bit of a wound. You know, what, that, what would mm-hmm. that have meant to me as a 12-year-old? You know, especially, yeah. you know, I didn't, I didn't get a date till I was 21, so I, I didn't have much to hang on to when I was a kid. <laughs> and, and uh, but the... Uh, I asked Jim Hobson about it, and he says as much as he enjoyed 2013, uh, 2009 still hurt a ton. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it was, for the players who were on that 2009 team, it was sure sweet to, to win it because they'd, they'd had their carts ripped out. And, I mean, the fans, you know, you remember how it felt. But uh, the, that 2009 will never quite go away because that's the one that there should have been. They never lost. They never trailed. The entire time there was time on the clock, the riders never trailed, and they didn't win the Grey Cup. You know how do you how do you digest that? It's always going to hurt. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. 2013, it was it was like all the all the the ghosts that had haunted the Rough Riders took the day off. You know, yeah. it was just it was like uh, even the weather be, improving overnight. <laughs> it was so cold the entire week, and then, and then November November twenty fourth of, of twenty thirteen was perfect. And you know, it used to be a rule, a, I think a civic um, rule that prohibited playing sporting events on Sundays. And it's like it's like the ghosts that had haunted the team obeyed that rule that that Grey Cup day. You know, there's there's been so many goofy plays in in in, in riders' history, Grey Cup history that had gone against them. Darian Durant fumbled. Suddenly, Corey Sheets plucks it out of the air and goes for 39 yeah. yards, as opposed to the. I'm not know, convinced that wasn't a lateral. <laughs> I'm not convinced. <laughs> but, some, but some other year, some other time, maybe that bump yeah. goes the other way, yeah. right? Um, it was just, it was like it was suddenly all the, all of that was washed away, at least for an afternoon, well into the evening. You know, they just mm-hmm. uh, all the all the squeaker great cups that they they'd lost and all the. All, all the things that had happened. Suddenly, they're leading thirty-one-six at halftime. G. Roy Simon catches two touchdown passes. You know, his first, uh, the first Grey Cup touchdowns of his of his amazing career. Just everything was meant to be. Tom Hanks was at the game. I mean, it just yeah. The, the seventy-six, uh, the, uh, the two thousand and thirteen Grey Cup was in a way that that I always thought the seventy-six Grey Cup should have been. The Riders get past Edmonton. Okay, now they crush Ottawa. Twenty thirteen, the Riders get past this terrific um, Calgary team and just blew mm-hmm. them out at McMahon Stadium. Yeah. So after that, the Grey Cup almost seems to be a, a, just a, a, a gimme. And it turned out to be. That was what 
you know, I'd always thought 1976 should be. And it was, it was so sweet for Darian Durant. I mean, it was just a, of all the players who really deserved to revel in a Grey Cup, uh, it was Darian. Even you know, well into that season, he was dealing with the critics. And yeah. uh, that playoffs he had, just just stunning. And people talk about that game against BC, but he, he, he had another amazing game against Calgary and threw three more touchdowns in the Grey Cup. I mean, his quarterback rating in, in the playoffs is virtually perfect. And that doesn't even factor in his, his, his prowess running the football. Darian Durant in the playoffs that year, I, I would challenge anybody to point to, to show me a CFL quarterback who's had a better playoffs ever than Darian Durant had in 2013. Just stunning. Look at the numbers. They're just ridiculous. There's a question mm-hmm. I want to ask uh, you because it almost seems like a generational question among Rough Rider fans. Who is the team's biggest rival? I think now fans would say Calgary. Um, I, I think some would say Edmonton, maybe if their formative years were in the late 70s. And then obviously there's Winnipeg for the Labor Day Classics. Who is the ultimate rival of the Rough Riders? It's kind of nice to have three in consideration, but... <laughs> yeah, you know, and at one time it seemed like BC was their rival. Cause yeah. In the early 2000s, they had a lot of really big games, or mid-2000s, they had a lot of really big games against BC that were, that were meaningful. And uh, uh, after 2009 and, 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 and 2009-2010, it seemed like Montreal was that team because they'd lost back-to-back Grey Cups to them. Yeah, so yeah. Despite the geographical separation, it seemed at that point that Montreal was the, was the rival. You know, growing up, it was Edmonton. Yeah, but uh, I mean, they played, met in the playoffs four straight years. But were I old enough to remember the mid to late '60s, that was Calgary. It seemed every year they were going to play Calgary in the playoffs. So it was Calgary for that period, and then it was it was Edmonton, and then they didn't make the playoffs for eleven years. So there was really no rival. <laughs> but, uh, I would say that now it would be Winnipeg because they, you know they've met them in the playoffs each of the last two years. That, there have been only two playoff games at New Mosaic Stadium. Winnipeg has won them both. Mm-hmm. Uh, now Winnipeg is the defending champion. Everybody's going to be shooting at them. They've got Zach Kalaros quarterbacking them. Yeah. Uh, that's been the team that the Riders can't get past. Just like if there was an impediment to getting to the Grey Cup 50 years ago, it was probably Calgary. 40 years ago, it was probably Edmonton. Uh, nearly 20 years ago, it was probably BC. Uh, Calgary had the big rivalry. But I, I, I think it was at its apex when Henry Burris was there. Yeah, I don't yeah. sense that there's the same rivalry now. I mean, the, the Calgary's head coach and the Riders' head coach are brothers. There just doesn't seem to be the same vitriol there. And with with the one year contract, mm-hmm. players are moving around so much that you really don't get in. You don't really don't get the feel of okay, this team's here, and there's no real carryover because uh, a lot of the players are moving from point A to point B. So you don't have that same player who's sort of the villain coming in every year and that has changed the dynamic a bit it just seems to be the team that is is the presents the biggest challenge to, to getting to where you want to go is is the rival i think if you had to point to one i think it would be winnipeg because of geography you're always going to have that rivalry game every year on labor day weekend followed by the banjo bowl so you got two rivalry games guaranteed every year and there there's there's a proximity geographically and now there's a playoff uh, history as well uh, recent playoff history so it can trend the other way, but when it, Winnipeg's always sort of the default rivalry. And like Travis said, like generational, like when we were growing up, you know, through junior high and high school, it it was the Eskimos. And then as we got older, it was because they were always seemed to be chasing Calgary. It was Calgary. For me, it's not really teams and players. It's fan bases that I have issues with. Yeah. And, I, and, and namely, 
you know, don't get like I I don't like the Stampeders, and you know I don't like a lot of their fans because when when they're around, it just seems that they get cocky and they have the right to be. That being said, Ryder fans are no better. <laughs> sometimes, I mean, they 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 are sheep, and they they follow the leader. But like you said, with the with the one year contracts and everything, like do you notice that with when different fan like because of the different teams with the different fan bases that come in, that the energy is different just in the stands, like not necessarily because of the team, but because of the fans that are there. Um. I don't really notice the fan bases as much anymore, um, mm. because the, the design of the new stadium—you know—it's almost like you're in a focus in, in a focus group when you're in the right. in the uh, press box, and a lot of the sound is is mm. is filtered out. It's so you don't nobody get a sense of it before we could open the windows in the Taylor Field. We really got a sense of what the buzz was mm. in the stands, but and then you'd walk down the ramps after the game to get to the dressing room and you really had an idea of what the buzz was and what the fans were talking about. Now we're in this hermetically sealed environment in the press box and then we take an elevator to get to the dressing room. If you don't really get a feel for it, it can be a really loud game, but you don't, it doesn't really, unfortunately, uh, permeate into the, into the press box as much as I'd, I'd like it to. I, uh, but the, you always feel like the Winnipeg games are just different because mm-hmm. you walk into the into the stadium and you see the Ryder fans interacting mostly amicably with the Winnipeg fans and and that's where a lot of the back and forth seems to go. I think the when you look at fans throughout the West Division, if it, aside from the Riders, I think the most passionate fans are those of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And I think, in a way, Ryder fans can relate to the Bombers and vice versa because it hasn't always been an easy ride. Uh, so much was made of the Riders or Winnipeg not having won a Grey Cup since 1990, and 30 years is a 29 years is a long time. But Riders didn't mm-hmm. win their first Grey Cup until their 56th year of existence. They didn't win again for 23 years after that, and then 18 years after that, and they were assorted heartbreaks and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think they've they've kind of I think they can empathize with one another, and it just <laughs> with the Labor Day game, there's always going to be that interaction. Mm-hmm. That's doesn't matter whether one team is good and one's bad or whether both are bad or both are good. You're always going to get that that kind of buzz when there's a Labor Day game and when there's a banjo ball and if they meet in the playoffs. So Winnipeg would seem to be it for me, but I'm not the, really the best person to mm-hmm. break down the fan vibe because I'm not among them anymore in terms of proximity. The, with the six-foot distance, you got to be careful. So. <laughs> well, like you said, there is even downtown Regina the night before Labor Day. There is a buzz, and oh, yeah. I mean, it's full of people from Winnipeg. You know, people that live in Regina that maybe aren't going to the game. They still go out. There is a buzz there, and like you said, it's amicable. Like everybody seems to get along, but for those three hours, everybody hates everybody, and it's it. What's it's what makes it fun. Yeah, it really is fun. Uh, yeah. I've only been to one banjo bowl. I was at the first one, actually, and it was, oh, just, wow. <laughs> it was really cool. And I haven't been to a game in the, the, the new stadium in Winnipeg yet, and I would really like to get a feel firsthand for what it's like in there because you hear so often that the noise sometimes can exceed the, the decibel level that's mm-hmm. produced in Regina. And uh, that would really be interesting to, uh, to experience and to evaluate. I was at the 2015 Grey Cup, which is really a sort of a neutral crowd, and there's just sort of noise uh, going on all the time. And that stadium, it it echoes more than uh, Mosaic. The, the flyover it, was loud. It's quite it's quite the stadium. But before we let you go, I kind of want to ask you about 
just I don't know. Is there a word that can put what the the Rough Riders mean to the province of Saskatchewan? Because what struck me about some chapters in the book is is things like Glenn Dobbs painting the stadium with the fans or, or or fans literally going to their doorsteps and getting autographs and things like that and stories like that i i don't know if that happens anywhere else in the world never mind canada yeah and i, I think there's that affinity and that connection that really it's not only with the rough riders but with the cfl in some areas in some markets obviously the fans aren't as passionate but that to me has always been part of what I've liked about the CFL and especially football here. If you're a, I mean, I, I love the Denver Broncos. absolutely love the Denver Broncos, but I never held on any hope that I would meet John Elway or, or, yeah. uh, or, or Peyton Manning. You know, I, I did meet uh, Randy Gratishar and that was beautiful. But, <laughs> uh, and Bill Romanowski. But um, if you want to meet your favorite rider player, just go to practice and get their autograph. They'll probably mm-hmm. chat with you. If you tweet them, chances are they'll tweet you back. If you write to them, they'll certainly send you an autograph. Uh, there's a real interaction there that you can't have anywhere else. Ron Lancaster's number used to be in the Regina phone directory. Wow. So if, you, if, you want, if you wanted to meet Ronnie, you could phone That's him ballsy. or show up at his doorstep. People used to show up at Ronnie's doorstep and leave gifts and, and uh, ask him to sign autographs or ask him to throw the football around with them. And he would. Wow. And, uh, a little better than what they left on, on McCallum's doorstep then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a downside to that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but uh, you know, that's, but when, they, when you look at a team that's followed as passionately as, as the Rough Riders are, and, and fans can feel like they know the players because they do, that really makes the, the bond stronger than it can be I think in a lot of other professional leagues, you know, I remember going to NHL games where if you wanted to get an autograph, you go downstairs at Winnipeg Arena, you can pretty much get anybody you wanted. They'd all come out walking by the fans. Now the bus parks inside the arena and everybody's shut yeah. off. It's just There's not the accessibility there. The CFL, it is still there. You can meet the players if you want. There's one CFL player that if you want, if you said, my mission is to meet this player, get his autograph, have a selfie taken. There isn't one that will that you can't get close to, and there isn't one who will say no. And uh, that's especially valuable here when the fans mm-hmm. feel such an investment. And uh, you know, I I told I, I've told the story several times. Winter of 1981, I was uh, almost 17, and um, I was I always Joey Walters. And uh, I read somewhere or heard somewhere that he was going to be at a Regina shopping mall doing a personal appearance for the team. And um, so I went down there just to you know, hopefully get an autograph and meet him. Not only did I meet him, I chatted with him for 45 minutes, then he apologized for taking up so much of my time. Oh, wow. <laughs> so suddenly I was the biggest Joey Walters fan ever. And, yeah. you know, 39 years later, I still am. And, uh, you know, I, I, that just, when you, when you have an opportunity to meet your heroes, and then when they prove to be 49,000 times better than in yeah. person than you ever could have imagined mm-hmm. them being, that just, that kind of, that was sort of the 2007 as far as me, you know, following the riders. I've been fanatical about them. And then suddenly your favorite player is, is the nicest guy in the world. Uh, you know, that just, that takes it to another level. And things went to a different level for the whole franchise in 2007. But my passion for the team, uh, which had always been there growing up, as soon as I had talked to 40, Joey Walters for 45 minutes outside an ice cream stand, <laughs> I mean, that just, I, you know, I've, I've told him that story personally. I mean, it's just... Uh, 
just a wonderful guy and a wonderful memory, and that's what you can do when you're following football in Saskatchewan. Look, look at Cody Fajardo and the way yeah. he interacts with fans. He gets it. I mean, yeah. it's amazing. He gets it. If you, Any fan in the world can send a tweet to Cody Fajardo and he would answer it. Yeah. I, 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 you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of Glenn Dobbs there. There really is. And uh, that's a pretty high compliment when you look at people, the caliber of a, of a human being and a caliber of a player. Well, I think you know your Rough Riders facts and 100 things Rough Riders fans should know and do before they die. I got it under the tree for Christmas. I- I'm a big fan of it. I think uh, all Rough Rider fans and CFL fans would get something out of this book. Thank you, Rob, for taking the time to talk to us and uh, stay safe. I will. You too, uh, Travis and Tyrell. It's been a great pleasure to chat with you, and I hope we have the opportunity again. We can tell more. Lloyd Minster stories. I'll, I'll go into deep, gory details about the things that I really made a mess of. Hey, with training camp postponed, that's what we might be talking about. <laughs> I've got some really funny Lloyd Minster stories that are just the ultimate in ineptitudes. If you ever want to have a few laughs and <laughs> talk about the things that I missed while covering uh, curling at the at the uh, Communiplex, just let me know. Uh, I'm always available. It's, awesome. it's, it's embarrassing, but I'm. I can talk about it. <laughs> if you're going to cover curling, I I am 100 percent in on this discussion. <laughs> I've got two. I've got two scandalously stupid curling stories from Lloyd Minster. Like they're just. It involved misreading the curling scoreboard. And you know how they um they used to put the <laughs> end numbers on the that. curling. If you got they put the, put the end numbers up there instead of the actual number of points you got in the yeah. end. Well, I was such a novice. I didn't know those were end numbers. I thought those were points that they were scoring. So, like, somebody had a nine-ender, according to my calculations. <laughs> and there was this one match where it was, it was a qualifier for the Nippon car spiel. And so I counted, and according to my... I, I treated it like a baseball line score. So I think I had the final score, like, 23 to 18. And the, and the losing <laughs> team had gotten some garbage points near the end. So he had the seven, the eight, right? So I went up to him, and I said, uh, what are your thoughts on the victory? And he goes, oh, I lost just glared at me, right? Because I miscounted the curling scoreboard. And uh, I go, what are your thoughts on the defeat? And what I didn't know at the time is that a truck had driven through the side of the the communiplex, and I'd missed it, and there was this gaping hole in the side of the building. And there was actually rubble on one of the sheets of ice. But I was so transfixed by this, by trying to misread the curling scoreboard that I'd missed the fact that a truck had backed through the... the, uh, Arena. That's, so that is part of the course in Lloydminster. Let me tell you. Hey, thanks for the stories and the laughs, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks again to Rob Vanstone from the Regina Leader Post for coming on the show and chatting a lot about the Rough Riders tie. It just seems like he knows his stuff right off the top of his head. Yeah, like I have to take notes when, like during regular season games. I have to take notes yeah. just to do this podcast <laughs> and everything with him. It just seemed to be right there for him. I, I envy that. Yeah, uh, me too. I, I definitely recommend checking out 100 Things Rough Riders Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. We are a part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. I want to point you in the direction of healthy lifestyle design with Pamela and Janet, a mom and daughter podcast. They do talk a lot about the COVID-19 pandemic during their last episode and with tips on how they got healthy to maybe inspire you. I don't know about you, Ty. Isolation is not a breeding ground for 
healthy lifestyles for me. So You're not hungry. You're just bored. <laughs> Thank you. Or thirsty, maybe. <laughs> I am bored all the time. Uh, we need to look to Pamela and Janet with healthy lifestyle design. Uh, part of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. So let's do this again in two weeks. I have no clue what we're going to do in two weeks, but we will be here in two weeks. Uh, right. well, we'll, just have to, we'll have to find a new show to watch on Netflix, and then we can just review that. Yeah, we have to watch The Tiger King again, maybe. <laughs> well, I am all in. <laughs> Rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Talk to you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Find more great shows like this at CF Pod Network on Twitter.